You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. Um, we went on a bit of a hiatus last month. Kevin and I were doing the MD Empowerment Conference, and it was great this year. We had a good turnout. We had some good questions. We learned a lot of things, and we taught people a lot of things as well. So we'll do it again. Um, it was quite exciting. But uh, we had to take a bit of a breather from the podcast because we had so many things to do. But now we're back, and what I'll talk about today is a very common medical condition. If you look at the statistics, actually, is the 20th most common thing seen by family physicians, and that's subclinical hypothyroidism. Let's review a bit how the thyroid system works. So you have a hormone called TSH, also known as thyroid-stimulating hormone, which is secreted from the pituitary gland and then goes to the thyroid gland, again, that big gland in your neck, and stimulates to make two hormones, the T4, thyroxine, and T3, triiodothyronine. And T4 is the the pro-hormone of T3, so it's less active, but it gets made into T3, gets cleaved into T3, and T3 is quite active. T3 is a very important hormone in your body. It controls many things, but you can ultimately separate them into three categories. It controls your metabolism, your development, and your growth. So obviously, thyroid issues can present with a wide range of symptoms that are rarely comfortable for the patient. Now, when I'm talking about subclinical hypothyroidism, what I mean is that really what's happening is the thyroid gland is producing enough T3 and T4 for the body to function, but because but the pituitary needs to produce a lot more TSH for that T3 and T4 to be made, which usually happens because the body, the thyroid gland is become is failing. Right? There's a bit of a failure of the thyroid gland. It requires a lot more stimulation to, to do the same production. So what that means is that it's a precursor to, to primary hypothyroidism, where the, the, the thyroid gland fails completely. It cannot produce enough hormone for the body to function properly. That's the clinical significance. So the things that cause primary hypothyroidism are often the things that cause subclinical hypothyroidism. You have autoimmune causes, such as Hashimoto's. You have iatrogenic causes, such as surgical removal of the gland, or half the gland, in the case of subclinical hypothyroidism, uh, radiation therapy to the neck. You also have congenital causes, such as hypoplasia of the thyroid gland, or thyroid aplasia, and things such as iodine deficiency, which are extremely rare in developed countries such as Canada, but you can see in other countries which don't have as much access to iodine or don't add iodine to their food supply. Again, it's a very common condition, the 20th most common condition seen in medicine. Um, it's estimated 8.5% of the population are affected. The people that are most at risk are the elderly, where estimates go up to 15%. And women, which are anywhere from 8 to 10 times more common than in men. There's some other risk factors to consider. If you have family history of thyroid disease, that's a, that's a risk factor. 
Other autoimmune diseases are also risk factors. So people who have autoimmune diseases, they tend to cluster. What am I talking about? Celiacs, vitiligo, lupus. Often people with celiacs may end up, end up with either subclinical hypothyroidism or, or actual frank clinical hypothyroidism. People who are in a postpartum state, especially if there was a history of prior postpartum thyroiditis, that's to reoccur. If you have people who have subclinical hypothyroidism already, there are some risk factors that increase the chance of them going into primary hypothyroidism or clinical hypothyroidism. By the way, just as an aside, when I'm talking about primary, that means that the, the problem is the, is the thyroid gland. A secondary hypothyroidism means the problem is happening at the pituitary. Much, much more rare, but it can happen in some conditions. So if somebody has subclinical hypothyroidism, if they have goiter, their chance of, of becoming hypothyroid, primary hypothyroid, is much higher. If there's the presence of serum thyroid antibodies, specifically thyroid peroxidase antibodies, the chance of them converting into primary hyperthyroidism is much higher. There is, in fact, a score that, that some people use to detect what the risk of a patient who has subclinical hypothyroidism is for them is to progress to clinical or primary hypothyroidism. And one of the scores that people use is the Thyroid Events Amsterdam score, the THEA score. And what they really look at are three things. The TSH level, the level of thyroid peroxidase antibodies, and the family history. So by looking at these three risk factors, they can calculate the five-year risk of developing primary or clinical hypothyroidism. Of, overall, if you look at patients with subclinical hypothyroidism, their risk is around 40% to progress to avert clinical hypothyroidism. Okay, So if you have somebody with subclinical hypothyroidism and you've decided not to treat them, you should certainly follow them, at least on a yearly basis. Now I'll talk about treatment in a second because treatment is a bit tricky in this condition. In terms of symptoms, we talked about risk factors. But let's talk about symptoms. And the symptoms, first of all, often people are asymptomatic and it's an incidental finding. Some people do a screening TSH for people. It's not necessarily required or suggested, but sometimes you catch something if you do just screening TSH on everybody. If people are symptomatic, the symptoms are not very specific. We're talking about things such as fatigue, low mood, low libido, hair loss, constipation so again not very specific but can be caused by subclinical hypothyroidism now in terms of treatment that's where the trick tricky part comes again the diagnosis is is based on laboratory findings you can't really diagnose this based on symptoms because the symptoms are very much wide-ranging so if you suspect it or if you're doing a screening TSH for example, in pregnant women, then you would diagnose it based on TSH level. And again, the diagnosis is simple. Uh, subclinical hypothyroidism really is hypothyroidism is really is is um, defined as a TSH of, of anywhere between five to ten, or even up to twenty. Although usually by that time they're overtly hypothyroid with a normal serum free thyroxine FT4. Okay, TSH is elevated with a normal serum free thyroxine suggests subclinical hypothyroidism. And again, that's all based on labs. 
better than clinical suspicion. They have symptoms, but mostly based on labs. Now, again, treatment is a bit tricky because the question is, do you treat these people or do you just watch them or do you just follow them? And there is a very good, clear reason to treat them, and that, that is if you're dealing with a pregnant woman who has subclinical hypothyroidism, you need to treat because you want to prevent cognitive impairment in the infant. So the, the target of the TSH target in the first trimester is below 2.5. Okay. And then the and after 20 weeks gestation, so second and third trimester is below 3.5. Pregnant women with subclinical hypothyroidism should always be treated because of the risk to the child. But what about others? And this is where things get tricky. If you look at guidelines, uh, so Canada doesn't necessarily have a, a clear guideline. Uh, Towards Optimized Practice from Alberta released a statement about thyroid disorders, I think in 2014. And they didn't really take a, uh, they didn't really take a clear position whether everyone should be treated with subclinical hypothyroidism. They did talk about the controversy. So if you go to the States, in 2015, the U.S. Preventative Task Force, they updated it, they, the guidelines and said that there's no good evidence to support treating subclinical hypothyroidism in patients with a TSH of uh, under 10. Okay, so they said, if a TSH would factor 10, we don't see why we should treat. On the other hand, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists and the American Thyroid Association, they didn't really agree. They said, yes, indeed, we don't see good evidence of treating people between between 5 and 10. But in our experience, so in their personal experience, these people should possibly be treated. Again, even though there's no broad evidence that this helps them, uh, in their experience, the experience of endocrinologists and the Thyroid Association, it might really help them. Maybe it's hard to detect how it helps them in the studies that were made. So they suggest considering treatment between uh, 4.5, actually a bit more aggressive than 5, to 10. They even suggest aggressive, they even adv advocate aggressive case finding and advocate screening individuals who may be at high risk. So, uh, and again, I talked about those uh, screening pregnant women, uh, screening people who have history of thyroid disease in the family. Obviously, if you have a goiter, you, you get tested, but it's less of a screen. And even they, they talk about screening people with other autoimmune diseases, such as, as I mentioned, celiacs with a LIGO and lupus. So very much different from what the U.S. Preventive Task Force said. And again, if you look at the evidence, um, there's, no, there's no good evidence that treating people under 10 helps. They look, For example, look at the elderly. It, subclinical thyroidism is not associated with with differences in depression, anxiety, or cognition. It is not associated with problems with functional mobility. It is not associated with poor health. However, there is some decent evidence that high TSH levels increase your risk of coronary heart disease up to two twofold. They almost double your risk if your TSH is high. It's even more noticeable if you get to a TSH of over 10. So, if I were to summarize, summarize what I was talking about. Subclinical hypothyroidism, very common condition, one of the top 20s in family medicine. Usually it's an incidental finding or, or, or you have a patient coming in with very vague symptoms. Fatigue, constipation, depression, low libido, hair loss, 
weight gain. I forgot that weight gain is a big one, but weight gain is not always thyroid related, right? It is a, however, it is a diagnosis mostly based on lab laboratory findings. So you're dealing with a TSH of over five, and usually up to ten, and a T4, a free T4 that's normal. In terms of treatment. I'll divide the treatment into two categories. Category number one, you should always treat. And category number two, you should consider treatment. So I think, and again, this is not clear, by the way. It's not clear, clear. Uh, this is just based on my research. But pe pregnant women, you should treat. And you have the targets of 2.5 in the first trimester and 3.5 in, in the second and third trimesters. Because ultimately, you're risking the health of the child if you don't. The other people that should be treated, and this is coming from my own fertility experience, if you have a couple with infertility and the woman has a TSH that is over 4, treating her with Synthroid, by the way, that's a treatment, right? you're giving Synthroid, so you're giving a really artificial hormone. Giving Synthroid increases their fertility and decreases their miscarriage rate. So, and as you know, the, the, the target level for fertility is, is actually even more strict than the American Thyroid Association of 4.5. It's four. So if you have a pregnant woman, you treat. If you have issues with fertility, you treat because there's clear evidence, in fact, for fertility that it has, it's helpful. Now you have that first category, the second category is uh, when should you consider treatment? And, and really, again, you're always having a discussion with the patient and you're going through the benefits and the issues with treatment. By the way, the issues with treating, the risk of treatment is, is really theoretically they can overdose. So they can, they can go into hyperthyroidism. But that's easily fixed. The other issue is obviously seizures. Uh, but uh, that's usually in children, so you can actually get seizures if you're over, if you if you if you give them much synthroid. But you always start really low and you go up slowly. That that's that's the way you get around from that. So the issues with treatment aren't that big, medically. I mean, patients may not want to take pills. So that's a different, different. That's a different situation altogether. It's a different problem. But anyways, in category two, who should you consider treating? Number one, consider treat, treating people that have symptoms such as fatigue, constipation, hair loss, weight gain. And with these people, I tell them, listen, I'm not sure if your symptoms are caused by the thyroid issue, by your subclinical hypothyroidism, but I think it may be worth giving uh, this medication a try, maybe for six weeks, maybe for three months, then see if you're feeling better. And if you're feeling better, then we can continue taking it. If you're not feeling better, then we can stop. That's the conversation I have with them. And I go through the issues with taking the medication, which aren't many, and the potential benefits. So that's the first category. The second category is treating people uh, with a TSH of over 10. Okay. Again, the reason why I tend to suggest treating those people is because um, they're much higher risk of having, of going into primary clinical hypothyroidism. So if they refuse treatment, you should certainly get, get them tested maybe twice a year. The other option you can do in, in, in any case is you can order a TPO. Remember, you can use the thyroid, you can use the antibodies to risk stratify them. If they have high levels of antibodies, 
it's a reason to try and well, first of all it's a reason for you to for you to, to treat and secondly it's a reason to you know, talk to the patient tell them listen you're at high risk so maybe we should treat okay so that's your second case and the third case is people who have high cardiovascular risk so i i, I use the framingham to calculate the risk if they're over 20 percent i know that their frf is over 20 percent i tend to treat because again the evidence states that their risk can double if their tsh is high okay so treat people and by, by the way this is my own approach um, it's not in a guideline but that's by reading the guidelines that's what i've decided I mean, you can be more aggressive. You can say if your FRF is in the intermediate range, I should treat, right? Because theoretically, it can double the risk. But just to summarize, consider treating people. So have a conversation with your patient if they have a high cardiovascular risk, if they have symptoms such as fatigue, constipation, weight, weight gain, so on and so forth, and if their TSH is more than 10. In any case... In all cases, you should reassess the TSH at a regular interval, whether you treat or not, because things can change. Uh, and if you haven't treated, people can go into hypothyroidism. Anyways, I hope this was helpful, and we'll be back next month with more Primary Medicine Podcasts.